Well, good morning. Uh, go ahead, take out your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 20. Uh, as we're walking through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we're in chapter 20, starting in verse 17. All right, if you don't have a Bible, um, I know all of you, you've got a phone, you can look at the Bible on that. Um, I, I mean, I'm somebody who likes to have a hard copy. Uh, it just doesn't feel real on my phone. I don't know why. I know it's the same words, and you're, you're more than welcome to read it there. But if you would like a hard copy, you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. Uh, and so on your way out this morning, there are a stack of Bibles in the lobby. Uh, you can take one of those. That's our free gift to you. Uh, we want everybody to have God's Word. But Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17, uh, and you might notice, if you've been here over the last several weeks, uh, that we did not stop at Acts chapter 20, verse 16 last week. Um, you probably didn't notice that, but I'm just going to go ahead and, and say that. You might notice it later. Um, and I was supposed to get all the way to Acts chapter 20, verse 16 last week, um, but normally it takes me the whole time to get through like two verses, uh, and so we didn't get there. Um, and so uh, it, it covers some things that we've covered a lot uh, together as a church body. Um, it is a text that I would highly recommend that you read and study yourself. Uh, it does give us one of the earliest examples of the church gathering together on Sunday. Uh, so they gathered in, the, in the, the evening after a long day of work. Uh, and they had to meet under uh, uh, lamplight, and they were there kind of worshiping together because that was the day that Christ rose. And then it gives us some of the elements, not an exhaustive list of elements, but some of the things that we do in the church today when we gather together, we see. Uh, and this is one of the earliest accounts of that. And so I would encourage you to read that. Uh, you also get a little bit of Bible humor, but also it's, it's pretty serious. If you were there, you probably were not laughing. Uh, and that's that Paul, um, in this service, actually preaches for upwards of about four hours uh, into the middle of the night, which, um, which is not uncommon during this time, and it's also not uncommon in many parts of the world today. Uh, in fact, in many parts of the world where the church is growing the fastest, people are walking for miles and miles, uh, sometimes hours, to get to church, and then they want to be there as long as they can, to get as much as they can of God's Word and then take it back to wherever they are and, and share the Word. And so that's not abnormal. The other thing is very abnormal. I have never had this before. Um, it ever happened. I've never been in a service where this has happened. Is that during his four-hour sermon, there was a teenage boy uh, who was sitting in a windowsill on the third floor, and he falls asleep and falls to his death. All right? That's uncommon. All right? And, and I don't care where you are. If you're preaching, somebody falls asleep. Now, Granted, long day of work. He probably was in the field. He's sitting under hot lights. All right, so let's give that to Paul. But he falls asleep, and, and God does rise him, uh, raise him from the dead. Uh, but we get this, this beautiful story of the church gathering together on Sunday to worship the Lord as we do today. But then when we get to Acts chapter 20, verse 17, we get something really special. Uh, this is one of my favorite texts in, in all of Scripture um, for what it actually represents and what it is. It's, it's really special for a couple of reasons. Um, one, it's the only speech in the book of Acts that actually speaks to and gives us words that are spoken to the church. Every other sermon, every other speech is to unbelievers. And so you're seeing a lot of people come to faith. And, and of course, we know that Paul's like teaching believers, that the church is gathering. Uh, but we don't have any, any uh, kind of examples of what's actually happening. Um, and this is a speech that's actually to believers. So that makes it special. Because for me, as, as I'm reading the book of Acts and I'm seeing the Holy Spirit just move in these incredible ways. 
right? That, that God is just moving. The church is on fire. The church is spreading. The church is multiplying. Um, we, we see all that the Holy Spirit is doing through the church in the community. But then this is the one speech that we get that's to the church leaders, to the church itself. That makes it special. It makes me want to lean in. The second reason that this is so special is it's Paul's final words to the church in Ephesus, to the, really the church in, in Asia. And so it's his farewell speech. He knows that he's, he's most likely not going to see them again. And so as he gives it, he says, hey, these are my final words to you. And, and they, they all weep together at the end. They put him on a ship to go off to where he is, he's going next. And so as we look at this, this speech from Paul, we're getting a, a look at what was taking place, what was being taught to the early church. But we're also getting Paul's last farewell, his final words. So in verse 17, he calls these leaders together for his final thoughts, and, and they come about 20 miles south of, of Ephesus. So they all kind of come to where Paul is, and he wants to tell them his, his kind of his, his thoughts of, of what to leave them with. He kind of describes like what his life has been all about and what he encourages the church to be all about. And so as we hear these final words this morning, I can't emphasize enough. I want us to feel the weight. I want us to feel the weight of, of hearing someone's final words. I know that's maybe not something that we think about a lot, but theologian D.A. Carson really helped me kind of feel the weight in my own heart this week. He says this, last words are meant to be lasting words. Last words are meant to be lasting words. That's such a simple phrase, but yet it's so profound. And I think Paul, at this point, he really wants us to hear these words from him to say, this is what has defined my life in the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage your life to be defined by these things. These are the things that should represent the Christian life, that should represent the church, that the church should be all about. And so before we dive into it, I just want you to think for a moment, just so we can kind of get a sense of, of what is actually happening here. If you had the opportunity to gather a people together that you love, and you know that it's the last opportunity you will have to speak to them. Who would you gather and what would you say? What words would you desire to leave with them that they would remember you by? But how would you want it to affect the lives that you're speaking into? What would you say and who would you gather? And listen, I, I realize that's probably not something that we think a whole lot about. Um, for most of us, maybe we've never thought about that. We've never felt the pressure of that. And as soon as I even ask that question, you're probably, if you're anything like me, you're like, man, that's, that's just so heavy. Like, I have no idea what I would say. Like, the only, the only kind of experience I have in really trying to think through something of a lasting word that I want to give to somebody, I have to go all the way back to, and maybe you're like me, all the way back to high school, like my senior year when somebody gave me their yearbook, right? And I'm just like, I'm sitting there with their yearbook, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to think of something like really profound to put in this thing, because they're going to look at this in 20 years, and they're going to look at what I said. And, you know, you put so much weight on this little thing that doesn't even really matter that much. 
And then you think about it, and you think about it, and your friend comes back, hey, you got my yearbook, I need other people to sign it. You're like, hey, I'm going to write in at this class period. Like, don't worry, I'm figuring it out. And then, and then by the end of it, you're like, oh, man, okay, oh, I got it. Like, have a nice summer, right? Like, that's kind of what we come to, or never change. That was always my favorite. It's like, man, you're cursing me. Like, who wants to be their 18-year-old self forever? Like, you're just cursing me to immaturity and, and desperation and awkwardness. But, but that's probably, right, that's probably kind of the only thought that we've really put into something like this. But I have to confess to you that I, I do think about this from time to time in, in the least morbid way that I possibly can. Like, I do think about... And, and spend some time just kind of reading last words. And this week as I was reading Paul's farewell letter, I was, I was also kind of reading a lot of um, ex-presidents and some of the things that they said with their last speeches and Dr. Martin Luther King and, and some of the athletes that I remi- admire. And I thought to myself, okay, what would I, right, tell my wife? Like, if I knew it was the last time that I could speak with her, what would I want to communicate? What would I tell my kids? And then, of course, my mind kind of goes off from there, and it's like, okay, we live in this digital age, so would I, would I put videos together so that they could be kind of opened at different times, and, and I would be able to be a little bit of a part of the rest of their lives? And, you know, how would I try to communicate with them the truth of what I want them to know about me, and also the truth that I would desperately long for them to understand themselves? What would that communication be? What would I hope that they would understand of that? And and so while I wouldn't recommend thinking about this all the time, I do think that it's a valuable exercise for us to participate in this morning because it causes us to really think about what matters most. And then am I actually living out what I believe matters most? If I was not able to communicate those words, would these things be known of me? Would these things outlast me? Because I think a lot of times in my own life, the things that I longed for people to hear from me and know from me and I long to be defined by are not actually what I'm living for because I get caught up so much in the things of the world that I just discover when I think about what's most important that I'm wasting a whole lot of time thinking about things and working on things and and pursuing things that don't matter if this is what matters most. And so I want to challenge us this morning to think about what matters most in my life. If I was going to have one opportunity to speak these words over the people that I love the most, what would I want to proclaim? And then does my life actually back up everything that I'm proclaiming? Would everybody walk away and say, That's, I believe that of them. I feel and sense the desire and longing for them to, for me to live in the things that they just said. So, so I hope that, that we can kind of just for a moment think about those things, get those thoughts in our heads, because I think it will be a great motivator for us to, to live the way that we actually desire to live and maybe even think of ourselves as. So this is what Paul does here. He knows that he has very little chance of ever seeing any of these men again. And so he calls them 20 miles from Miletus to meet them so that he can speak these words over them and to them. So that he can tell them what matters most. 
And as we read this, we need to understand he's not just communicating his last words. He's desperately pleading that these would be our last words. That these would be the things that we are defined after. And so I deeply respect Paul. Um, if you are a follower of Christ, then, then you probably look up to Paul about as much as you do anybody outside of Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer and you know anything about Paul, then you would absolutely look up to him as much as you do anyone else. And so when he says, these are my final words to you, that I'm pleading to be your final words as well, then I want to know, okay, what is Paul saying? And that's how I want us to lean in to these words this morning. I'm not just writing this for me. This is not my farewell. But this should be the farewell of the church. Look at Acts 20, starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know that I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So here we even see this, this design of the early church to proclaim the truth, much like in the setting we are doing now, and then also to have relationships with people from house to house. This is one of the reasons that we have small groups. He says, testifying both to the Jew and to the Greek of repentance towards God and of the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, so listen to Paul and his heart to live out the gospel truth, except that the Holy Spirit that testifies to me in every city that I am imprisoned and afflicted, that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life as any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink away from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease neither night nor day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you the God to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in the way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord. Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed for them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him. 
being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that he was leaving. And they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Here in this text, we get the final words of Paul. And, and, and I want us to, to really investigate what is happening here. And so I'm, not, I'm, I'm desperately trying this morning not to overthink any of these things. I really just want to lay out the things that Paul is saying. And to varying degree, we'll explain some of these things this morning. But really, he lays out six different things that he wants the church to understand that define who he is. And for more or less, we're just going to walk through those in the order that he gives them. And he's, he wants us, he pleads with us, that these would be the six characteristics that the leaders of the church would take back to the church, that the church may be defined by these things. So while this is to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, it's to all of those who minister to what God has called them to, which is everyone that God has called to himself. And so I want us to understand these things this morning. This is what he says. He says he brought them together And then he said to them, what does Paul want them to take away? What are these life characteristics? The first one that he points out in verse 18 that he wants us to hear is he says this, I lived an open life among you. This is the first characteristic that Paul wants us to know about him, that everything that I'm about to say, you know to be true. You can trust me. You understand. You know. You have watched me. We have lived life together. And the characteristic that I want to pass on to the church is is that we would live open lives as followers of Christ. He says, you yourself know. So this is not just me wishful thinking that that you wanted to come here and hear from me. This is not just wishful thinking that that you're going to take anything that I say from this point forward and believe that it's actually worth holding on to. Like, you're not going to walk away and go, well, that was nice that Paul said all that. That was, really, that was really good, but I have no idea if he actually lived that way or not, or I actually do know him, and those, none of those things are actually true of him. No, he says, my life has been open to you from the very beginning, and everything that I'm about to say you know is true. So this, this is not just him posting something on social media and hoping that all of his, his social media friends like, follow everything that he's trying to say. Right? He has deep community. He, he, people know who he is and he knows them. So he says, you know me from the very start. I think there's a reason he says this even before he says that he's following Christ with all that he is. He's saying, you know me, so therefore when I say that I have followed Christ with all that I am, you can believe me. There, there is infallible proof and evidence. You, you could call foul on everything that I'm saying, but everything that I'm saying you know to be true because you know me. And so this, this guided my first thought as, as I was reading this text and I'm thinking through in my own life, like, what would I desire to say to the people that I love most? What would I say to our church family, to those that work here at the church, to, to my personal family? The first thought that I had was guided by this, not just what would I say, but going back to what I said at the very beginning, who would I want to listen Who would it be in my life that I would draw in to the point where I would think to myself, if I've only got one more thing to say, and that's it, and I want it to have a lasting impression, then who would it be, and who would want to hear, 
And who could I actually challenge in a, in a way that would, would impress upon them a, a listening ear, a, a heart that has a soil that's ready to receive because of the life that they have lived with me? What community would I call on? This was the first thought that I had. Who would want to listen? See, to be known by people and to be truly known by them and to truly know them is a deep, deep desire of every single one of our hearts. All of us were created to have community with God and and he created us to have community in him together. And so from at the very core of who we are, we, we desire to be deeply known. We, we say here all the time that, that we all know we want to be loved. We want to be deeply known and truly loved. And, and the reality of that is you can only actually be loved to the extent that you're truly known. Nobody can love you unless they actually know you. They might say they love you. They might actually act like they love you in some way. And, and the best that they know how, they're loving you. But they're just loving the version that you're letting them see. So you can hide things from them, but if, if you are truly known, then you can be truly loved. You can only love to the extent that you know another. That's why the love of God is so beautiful, church, that he knows us intimately. He knows our every thought. He knows our every action. There's nothing that we can hide from him, and yet he dies for our sin. But see, all of us, we want to be deeply known. We want to be truly loved. None of us would want to have this opportunity and wonder to ourselves, I wonder if anybody even wants to hear this. Are these just courtesy listens that people are just kind of coming together and going, well, I guess he said it's his last thing that he's going to say. And so, you know, we need to be there. Or do we have deep, true community? Who would even be able to say, I know that everything that they are saying is true? See, I want us to start thinking about this. Are, are we in actual community? Do we have a community that we would long to express these things to, that would long to hear from us and would be able to believe the things that we say because they've seen it backed up by the life that we've lived? Because none of us would want to spill out our deepest truths about the life that we've lived and the life that we long for others to live and wonder, do they believe anything that I'm saying? So yeah, all of us, we want to be loved, but we also want to be able to communicate with the ones that we love, and we want to have a life that backs up everything that we were saying. And so, so I want us to understand that, that when we're thinking about our farewells, when we're reading about what Paul desires for the church to leave behind, we, we need to begin to know that he says, I was known by you, and that actually is what gives me this opportunity, and so if we're wasting our time, if we're not actually living in the things that God has deeply called us to be known in and known by, then the opportunity to give the farewell in which we would all desire to have, but probably haven't really thought about, will not actually be there if we're not living in the fulfillment of what we really believe now. So he says, I've got deep community and, and what we, the life that we long to live, the life that we long to portray, the life that we long to give, the life that we long to leave, it requires true community. And so Paul starts with, you know me. My life, for better or worse, has been open to you. You've seen my struggles. 
You've seen my failures. You've seen my hardships. You've seen my trials. You've cried with me. You've seen my joys. You've seen my excitements. You have laughed with me. Listen, this is what God created us for. This is what God saves us to. And so if you've placed your faith in Christ this morning, then this is not just, listen, this is not just a place that you come that we call church. You are a part of the body of Christ. And the deepest community that you can have on earth at the deepest level, seeking after the greatest truths to live out the greatest mission is to be a part of what God has called eternal. And his body is the only eternal entity on earth. It's the place that we grow in the community that we were created to have with him. It's the place where we live out our faith together. It's the place where we can be deeply known and truly loved because all of us understand that we are saved by grace and grace alone. See, the community that we're called to have here is a deeper community than than just convenience, than than just a religious thing that we do, just some sort of cultural Christianity. There's something deeper that must happen here if we desire to walk out our faith in a way that would would be worthy of leading other people toward uh, watching our lives. As Paul says, watch me as I have followed Christ. If that's the desire of our hearts, because we understand that the gospel is the truest and deepest thing that we could ever long for, ever be defined by, the only thing that gives hope and joy in this world, that we cannot save ourselves, but God has saved us. If that's the defining characteristic, then the soil in which that identity grows in us, the soil in which that identity is revealed through us, is the church. That's what God has put us in when we place our faith in him. And so we need to know that this, should, this community that we're called to build should not just be something that we do if we don't have a big day tomorrow or we haven't had a hard time today. It's not something that we just seek out when we need someone to help us with something. And so real community is not just, well, there's a real community over there. I have a need, so let me go tap into them so that I can use them to meet my need. Real community is life on life. Paul says, I spoke with you in the the church. I spoke with you house to house. You know me. I know you. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that and church community in just a moment. The second thing, though, that he says, I I want you to know about me, and I want this to be a characteristic of the people of God, is of first importance. He says, look at this. I served the Lord. I served the Lord. You know me, so you know what I'm saying is true. And the first thing that I want you to know and be reminded of me, and I want to challenge you into, is that I serve the Lord. See, if we're reading this whole speech as Paul's farewell speech, this would be the epitaph. This would be the thing that's on the tombstone, that I served the Lord. This is the statement that he wants us to take away that he served with all humility and with tears through all trials that the Jews plotted against him. Man, what a bold statement. You know me, and I'm defined by serving the Lord. I'm defined by seeking his glory. I I want that to be true of me. I pray that for our church family, 
That we would be defined by people who serve God. That we would be defined by doing everything that we do for his glory. So, so this means that, that I am the Lord's. This is the characteristic that Paul wants to pass off, that I belong to God. That means whether I'm making tents, that means whether I'm in the marketplace, it means whether I'm visiting the synagogue, it means whether I'm with believers, whether I'm speaking to idol makers, whether I'm reasoning with city leaders. He says, I served the Lord. The underlining thing that defines who I am and the identity that you would see from me and knowing me truly is that I am a worshiper of God in everything I do. See, when we place our faith in Christ and we understand the gospel truth, then what defines us is that we are wholly his, that all of us is his. He's radically pushing against this idea of a compartmentalized faith, that I can belong to God and and be saved in him and understand and realize his grace, but then live my life to find an identity and value and worth and all of these other things in the world. No, he says, and no matter what I do, I belong to him and everything I do is for him and to him. Listen to me, otherwise, if this does not define who we are as followers of Christ, then no matter what story we tell with our lives, it is a story that's misleading. If you plead with people with all of your might to follow after all that you have been, but your faith is not, I am wholly finding all that I am in God, then they can walk away and go, that's what we need to do. What a great guy. What a great woman. What an amazing person. But if they were not and you are not wholly belonging to God in everything that you do, and that is not the message that you give, then you are misleading anyone who would walk away and say, that defines a good life. So see, Paul wants us to know that if, if you know me, what I want you to know is that I belong to God. That humbles him, doesn't it? So it says, I'm humbly serving the Lord because I understand his grace. If we're seeking life in our own ways and in our own things, it will always produce pride. We can, we can say that we believe in Christ and that we believe in what he has done, but if we're pursuing life and anything else, it will produce a pride in us, a religiosity in us, a, a judgmentalism in us. We'll be judging one another and how we're doing based on how everybody around us is doing, but grace levels the playing field. So when Paul says, of anybody, I have the most reason to boast, he says, but I know who I am in Christ and therefore I am the lowest of the low. I understand grace and that causes humility in me. But I also understand that there's only one life that's worthy of living, and there's only one God that's worthy of giving all glory with that life too, and it is Christ. And so therefore, I have have humbly served the Lord in everything that I've done, and I have done so with tears because I see the lostness of the world. I see the brokenness of my cities. I see the the brokenness of the families in the city. I see the brokenness of uh, of what's happening all around the churches in Asia. And so he says, man, I have with great tears endured the trials that have come before me. And no matter what trial comes, no matter what circumstance I'm in, no matter what situation I find myself having to go through, it was worth whatever came. And with tears, I pursued in humility to reveal a life serving the Lord so that all would know that he is the one that they are searching for. These characteristics of Paul that he lays out right here, I think he shows best in verses 20 to 23, and then again in verse 26 and 27. It's the third thing that he lays out. 
He says, the characteristic that, that I want to point you towards and that has defined me, he says, I, I made sure that my community knew the truth. See, I, I'm known, I'm living life with you. I want you to know I'm serving the Lord in all that I am. And when I fail, I'm going to be quick to repent and realize and seek forgiveness and to forgive those who have failed me. I want you to know I'm serving the Lord with all that I am. And so I've spent my life in humility with tears through any trial, making sure that I'm communicating the truth with all of my life. See, Paul says my identity and purpose on earth is primarily found in a message. And it's the message of life. It's the message of Jesus Christ that we cannot find what we're looking for and we're created for in anything of the world or of ourselves or following our own hearts, but Jesus Christ has come and lived and died on our behalf, that he paid the penalty of our sin, that he rose from the grave to defeat all that is defeating us. And by placing our faith in him, we are saved by his grace and his work alone. I want everybody to know that truth, Paul says. So, so I'm living my life that this truth would be known to all people that I am connected with in the community that God has placed me in. So he said, this is the truth I want everybody to know, and I'm spending my life professing it. In verse 26, he says, therefore, I am innocent of your blood. I love that. It's an Old Testament reference, but he's, he's basically saying that, that, man, I am responsible for the news that I know, and I've lived in such a way where I've proclaimed it with all that I am. I've displayed its righteousness, its glory, its grace, its, its repentance, its forgiveness, its love, its compassion, and, and I've spoken it to you. It's what my life has been given to, and therefore, I'm innocent of any responsibility of you not believing. So it's not my, it's not my job what you do with it. But it is absolutely my responsibility to share it. And I've shared it with all that I am. And therefore, I don't have to take responsibility for the way that you respond. That's on you. As I said, it's an Old Testament reference with this idea that the responsibility I have for certain things that I know doesn't fall on me if I've revealed everything that I know to you. This is my job every single week. It's my job when I'm in the coffee shop studying. It's my job when I'm, when I'm out and about throughout the city, when I'm meeting with some of you or, or, or someone that I meet uh, throughout the week or as I'm standing here every Sunday. It's, to, it's that you would not walk away from here confused that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And I, I don't know what you do with that information I pray that you receive it. I pray that it defines you because I love you and I want you to have the joy that you were created to have in God and you can only have it in him. But I'm not going to be responsible for the fact that you don't know where salvation comes. And, and see, Paul says that I've lived my life to reveal this. And he wants all of us as followers of Christ to know that, that our main primary, primary identity is to be a people defined by a message that we share in everything that we do. In all humility, in all love, he says, to the Jew and to the Gentile, that I've revealed this truth in everything that I have done. And listen to me, that's your job. That's, that's part of the joy that God has called you to, to be on mission. Charles Spurgeon said, every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. And, and, and I can just tell you from experience, we were uh, meeting together as an elders and praying before our service this morning. 
And, and one of the elders just reminded me of something that, that we talked about a long time ago, that when we share our faith, some of the most joyous times and conversations I've walked away from are when I've shared my faith and the person has utterly rejected it, but I was absolutely sure they knew the truth. Like I gave them the truth and they rejected it and they never wanted to talk to me about it again. But I walked away with both a deep sorrow and tear, but also with this joy knowing, man, I've done what God has called me to do. See, we're called to be a people with a message that shares it to all that we know. And we are responsible for what we know. We're not responsible with how people respond. I had a seminary professor. I'll never forget him. Uh, Matt Mears had a, had a class with me, one of our elders here, and he actually can do the voice of this professor really, really well. So you should ask him about that later. Uh, but I'll never forget this guy. And he used to call this the sin of the desert. The sin of the desert. And, and, and I want us to think about this for just a second. If we're all lost in a desert and none of us have anything to, to drink, we're thirsty, we're dehydrated, we're, we're dying... We're just chasing after mirage after mirage, hoping that it will satisfy our souls and quench our thirst for life. And so we're seeing all of these different things. We're pursuing them with all that we are, thinking and hoping that somehow they'll give us the life that we long for, but they're not actually true life-giving wells. But here I am off to the side, and I've got a canteen full of water, and I know where the water source is. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm full of life. I'm, I'm not dehydrated. I know where life is found. I know where to go to the well and get more and more and more that never actually ends. But I'm watching everybody around me just chase mirage after mirage after mirage. And, and I'm not telling them where the water is. It's the sin of the desert. I know where the water is. I know where all of you could drink and never thirst again, but I'm looking at you and going, well, it looks like you're having fun chasing the mirages. Like you're probably just going to say what I'm saying isn't true and that too is just a mirage. So, So for the sake of rejection and you looking like you're having a good time, I'll just keep it to myself. And see, Scripture would say we're responsible for the news that we know. We're not responsible for how people respond. That's on God. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But man, far be it from us, church, if we are in the middle of the desert of Winston-Salem with people chasing all types of mirages around us, knowing where the water is and keeping it to ourselves. That is morally irresponsible. It's sin. And God calls us to something greater and to something more. Paul says, I've lived my life to reveal this truth Man, what a life challenge that that I'm living my life to see people go from death to life, to stop chasing the mirage and to actually find living water. That's all of our calling. I don't care what you do for work. I don't care what mission field God has called you to. God has called you and placed you in a neighborhood and a workplace as a missionary for him. And our greatest calling is to reveal him in all that we do. And Paul says, this is what I want to lay out to you. These are my farewell words to you. And I want you to know there's one life worth living and revealing. And it is Christ. And if it's rejected, it's rejected. But your blood will not be on my hands. Here's the question, believer. 
the people that God has placed close to you hear and see the truth through you? Not if they received it, but do they see it? Do, do they feel the weight of that truth through your life and the way that you value them and the way that you love them in the way that you care for them. Does that mean I'm supposed to be done? <laughs> in the passion that you show them. Are you longing for them to know Christ? In the way that you love them, in the way that you reveal to them. That's, listen, that's a legacy worth living. That's a legacy worth leaving. Is your life humbly revealing community with God, with his people, that you're a known person? That you have people who actually know you and love you is the goodness of God revealed to everyone around you no matter what you do. Because listen, that's why we're here as a church. That's why God's left us here. It's why he tells us the Great Commission is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptized in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us in Acts 1.8 that I'm sending the Holy Spirit with power that you might reveal me to the ends of the earth. See, we're here to grow deeper in him and to reveal him in all that we do. I know I need to be quicker, but I actually had a, a, a conversation with somebody in a coffee shop not that long ago, and they looked right at me after we had talked about the Bible and some of the questions that he had, and, and he just said these words, if Christians really believe all of this, then why are they not begging people like me to believe? Listen, there's no greater life to live. See, Paul lays this out. He wants us to understand. And, and here's what we need to know. There are about right now 180,000 people in our city proper that do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the only way that this generation of unbelievers will hear the gospel truth is if this generation of believers reveals it. That needs to be a challenge to us. Fourthly, and I'll go really quick. Paul says, I want you to understand that I invested deeply in the church. It says, I protected the truth. This is in verse 28 to 32. There, there's, there are organizations out there that, that depend on investment to be able to survive. I, when I was in Orlando, before my family and I moved up to Winston-Salem, um, there was a particular radio station everybody listened to that were that were Christians, okay? And so it was just kind of this, it was Z88.3, all right? And it drove me nuts. It was the same five songs over and over again. And people were just pouring thousands of dollars to hear these songs. Like every minivan in America was calling in every time they asked for money. But they would, they would say everything that's coming in. And I was just like, man, people really love this thing. Like they're desperate for some positive hits, right? Like, I mean, they're just like giving it to this thing all that they have to get, keep this thing going. And, and that's true of, of many organizations. But listen to me, there is one investment that is like no other investment. And it's the investment that God made for his church. He gave his life for his church. And Paul says, if Jesus shed his blood to purchase the church, then I'm going to give my life to the church. And listen, I, I know that that looks different for all of us. I'm a pastor, and so it's going to look different for me than it looks for you. You all work other jobs, but, but we are all called to be missionaries. We're all called to be a part of his body. We're all called to invest in what God is doing. It's our primary thing. I believe that if we know Jesus, it's the story we want to tell. It's the thing we want to be remembered for, that we did something that had eternal value and produced eternal fruit 
Not just that I did all of these things over here and I accomplished all these things and I gained all these things and now I have all these things. That, that when you die, listen to me, your grandkids are going to hold up in the air and think, my great-grandparent owned this? Like, and it's going to be sold at some estate sale or if you're anything like me, a garage sale? Right? Like, is that what we really want to be remembered by? Look at all the stuff they produced. Or look at the life that they lived on the mission for the God that created us. See, Paul says, if God invested everything in his people and died for his people to know him, then we should invest all that we are in the church. And, and I know it's messed up. Like, you don't have to come up to me and say, well, I would if the church wasn't this, this. I know. Jesus died for the church. I get it. It's broken. It's broken because you're here. It's broken because I'm here. But it is the family that God calls us to. And Christ reveals in his truth in all of scripture that we are called to be a people united around him. That we're called to do what he's called us to do through the body of Christ together. And if we're not doing that, then we are robbing ourselves and one another of everything that we are called to. All right, so this is the truth that we're called to the body of Christ. That God has called us together, and this is to be the center point of what we do. So if we want to see gospel-centered transformation in our lives, if we want to see it in our city, if we want to see racial unity in our city, if we want to see poverty decrease in our city, if we want to see marriages healed in our city, addictions broken in our city, then we must realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ through his church is the hope of our city. It has to be a defining characteristic of our lives. So listen to me. I know it's broken, but don't run from it. Let's turn to God together in it and let's make it and, 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 and chase after it to be the most beautiful thing on earth that it's intended to be. Let's protect truth together. Let's, let's protect grace and forgiveness and love. Let's pursue one another when we hurt one another. Let's forgive. Let's seek forgiveness. Let's push back against the enemy, not lay into his hands and his schemes. So this is why he says to the elders in verses 29 and 30 that I have pointed these truths out to you because I know that wolves are coming in. I know our own hearts are broken. I know that uh, untruths are going to come in. And so I want you to protect the truth. Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, he said, every pastor and every believer should be both a soldier and a shepherd. That we protect the truth and we guide the body. Listen, we could spend a lot more time there, but I know I need to wrap up. The fifth and the sixth thing, here's what he says. Fifth thing, the defining characteristic of Paul's life is he calls us to finish strong. Go back to verse 24. He says, I've been faithful to do all that God has called me to do. Now, listen, we don't have the same calling that Paul has, but every single one of us, as I've already said, has a calling. And I want us to persevere to the finish. The most important day is not the first day, it's the last day. And, and I want us to finish strong. I want us to wake up each and every morning devoting ourselves to God. I want us to go to bed every night exhausted for what we have done for his glory and for his name to be known. That is the fulfilling life. That's when we sleep like babies, guys. So we're not worried about what tomorrow might gain or what tomorrow might take away because tomorrow is the Lord's and I am his. 
And I don't know what happens tomorrow, but I know when I go to bed tomorrow night, I will have done everything that day for his glory, or I'll lay in bed and repent and seek to live for his glory the next day. See, it's all about him. And then finally, he says, verses 33 and 35, my heart's longing is, is, is for the world to view things in a different way to view their things, to view what they do, to view what they pursue. So he says, listen, I want you to know and I want you to remember I was generous because I found everything that I needed in Christ. Everything I long for is in him. I'm, I'm full in him. I have unity in him. That's what I was created for. I was created to worship him and he gave us dominion over all things to, to worship and to fulfill the earth with worshipers of who he is as our creator. And so that changes the way that I view everything about the life that I live and the things that I have. Listen, gospel people are generous. We're not driven by what we can get. We're driven by what we have. And we're defined by who we are in him, not what we might get in the things of the world. So in Christ, we want to use our time and our talents and our treasures for the multiplication of gospel-centered ministry in our city. Because we have hearts that love to give out of a heart that is full of a love that never stops giving. We realize that Christ is our greatest treasure. And we can certainly have nice things, but we realize in, in life, in Christ, that we're, that we're stewards, not owners of everything that we have. And we long to see God's glory in our city. Listen, if you want to leave the life that you desire to leave, then you must begin to live the life you were created to live. So let's have that vision for our lives. Paul said these things, and it says in verse 36, he knelt down and he prayed for them. 